This is Duke University. I'd like to welcome you to our third annual Leader in Social Entrepreneurship Award Lecture. It's my honor to introduce our award winner, Wendy Kopp. Most of you who are here, and probably many of you were brought into this room because you know about Wendy, and you know a little bit about her story. Um, but I'm going to reiterate that for those who might not uh, know the history of what Wendy has done and why we might end up picking her as our award winner this year. Uh, Wendy epitomizes, for me, the, the very idea of entrepreneurial vision, commitment, and persistence. Those of you who know the story, the idea for Teach for America came out of Wendy's senior thesis at Princeton which I think is uh, pretty amazing at that age to have the vision to create a national teacher corps and the persistence to do it. She was advised uh, not to focus specifically on this as her thesis topic, but to present a more general argument about national service. And um, she decided to ignore that advice and uh, do what she wanted to do, which was to create a plan for launching this service corps, this teacher corps. Um, which was phenomenal. And then she took the incredibly risky strategy of deciding she was going to do this instead of taking another job. She would launch Teach for America. This is 1989. So finishes her senior thesis, decides, you know, forget the job market. I'm going to go out and raise the money. And she was looking to raise a couple of million dollars, which is a a daunting task to most of us who've, who've worked in this sector, but not uh, too daunting for Wendy at the time, um, to start Teach for America. By the spring of 1990, she had attracted something like 2,500 applicants, um, offered 500 placements for the summer of, starting in the summer of 1990 for two-year appointments for people to work and teach in inner city and rural districts that are under-resourced. Under so less than a year from graduation, she's recruited 500 teachers for schools desperately in need of new teachers. Uh, this alone uh, is enough of an accomplishment to justify this award, but it didn't stop there. As most of you know, Teach for America has continued to thrive and grow over the years. Uh, in the intervening years since 1990, uh, Teach for America has placed something on the order of 12,000 uh, young college graduates in these rural and urban districts. And think of the number of students who've been touched by those 12,000 placements. It's, it's phenomenal. This year alone, from what I understand, there are 17,000 applications for what will be about 2,000 spots. Clearly, one of the most sought-after jobs for, uh, for graduates of college who want to make a difference, who want to give back, and who want to have the experience of teaching uh, in these urban districts it's, and rural districts. It's, it's phenomenal. But even more importantly than providing these teachers for two years, she's created a pool of education and social entrepreneurs that is without peer. I can tell you, I go to a lot of meetings on 
social entrepreneurship, educational entrepreneurship, meetings with foundation officers and other folks interested in these topics. And I can't tell you how often I run into Teach for America grads. They're everywhere. The alumni of Teach for America not only spend their two years teaching, and some of them will teach beyond that, they also are interested in promoting change and quality in American education, and they find a variety of ways to do it. Some of the most exciting organizations in the educational landscape now are run by people who came out of Teach for America. And sometimes the very ideas came out of their experience at, at Teach for America. So Teach for America is not only a powerful example of social entrepreneurship, it is spawning social entrepreneurs and I think uh, seeding the field in ways that very few other organizations can claim. If you're interested in learning more about them, in addition to Wendy's talk today, I will plug her book, which is called One Day All Children, The Unlikely Triumph of Teach for America and What I Learned Along the Way. Um, it's a great read. What you need to know, because when you look at successes like this, you think it was all smooth sailing. It was not all smooth sailing. There were some enormous hurdles, challenges that, that Teach for America met and overcame. The book documents those. This was what, 2000 or so when this came out. So there have been more since then. Um, and Wendy continues to, to persevere to make this vision a reality. And so without any further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Wendy Kopp. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, well, this is a great honor to have the chance to talk with you all and to be the recipient of this award or honor. Um, uh, and, and it's great in part um, because Greg has been um, such a sort of force in developing this kind of field of social entrepreneurship. So um, he is at a lot of meetings, the same ones I'm at, and, and, and he's just been really important to all of us um, in the field. And I'm also, uh, I think it's interesting to be here. I mean, I guess Rex Adams is no longer here, but um, he used to be, I assume you know, a year ago or so, the dean of the, the business school here, and uh, was actually the person who made the first grant to Teach for America. He made the initial seed grant, and I think if it hadn't been for him, it's, I think, probably a real question as to whether we would have Teach for America today. So, interesting story. Um, but I thought I would just share more with you about the story of how I started Teach for America, and how it progressed, and what I learned along the way. And really am excited to share with you why it is that I feel and my colleagues at Teach for America feel today a greater sense of urgency than ever um, to take what we're doing to a higher level. Um, as Greg said, there have been many hurdles along the way. Um, in part, um, you know, th there are still today, I mean, every day, even greater challenges because we keep raising the bar for ourselves and, and setting more and more ambitious goals. Um, but, but we've also learned a lot that's helping us, you know, take more and more sophisticated approaches to that. So I'm excited to just dive into some of the substance and share that with you, and then really hopefully to have a discussion. I mean, I'd love to just open this up to um, a kind of good question and answer session. 
So um, this started now, I guess, uh, hard to imagine, but 17 years ago or so, um, when I was a college student. And in many ways, I think I was an unlikely person to start Teach for America or to come up with this idea. I had grown up in Dallas, Texas, in a very you know, privileged, um, kind of homogenous community. Um, had gone to public school, but you know, a, a almost private public school, um, you know, always on those lists of top 10 public schools and whatnot. And somehow made it all the way through college without realizing that there are disparities in our country. I mean, without truly, truly realizing that. And then went to Princeton, where you could, of course, never begin to see the depths of educational inequality. But it was there, um, actually, during that first week at Princeton, that I got a little bit of a glimpse into the fact that where you're born in our country still does determine to, such, to, to some extent um, your educational prospects. Um, my freshman year roommate had gone to public school in the South Bronx, and through her I met um, a lot of other people who were from sort of similar circumstances and who got to Princeton and just really, really struggled to meet the academic demands. Now, my roommate is one of the most brilliant women I've ever met, um, and yet she nearly didn't make it. And here we are, rooming next door, to a room full of women who had gone to the prep schools on the East Coast and who literally called Princeton a cakewalk. Um, so that was, was a little glimpse. Um, of course, my roommate had made it out of this public school and had made it to Princeton, so it's, it's not even a, a beautiful window into it. But that really kind of seeded for me um, a, a just kind of passionate interest in this issue of, of education in our country because I'm thinking here we are, we aspire to be a land of opportunity and yet there's such educational inequality in our country. Can we really think of ourselves as a land of opportunity if where you're born determines your educational opportunity? And so as a public policy major and just a concerned college student, I started you know, doing what college students do, taking courses on it, organized a conference on it and that kind of thing. Um, so I go along being, you know, the college student, you know, just doing whatever college students do, taking courses, doing extracurriculars, reach my senior year, and just descend into an absolute funk. Not necessarily because of this particular issue, but just because of my own future. And I, I found myself just searching for something that I wasn't finding um, in terms of, of a way to make a real difference in the world, to do something straight out of college where... I could assume a real responsibility that would make a real impact. And I felt that I wasn't alone, that there were thousands of other graduating seniors out there who reached this point in their senior year where they found themselves searching for the same thing. And sometimes I think you have to get down to the points of sort of real depression to kind of have inspiration strike. And literally for me, this was the first funk I'd ever been in in my whole life. I mean, to the point where I just couldn't even come up with a thesis topic. I couldn't, I just couldn't motivate myself to do anything. And one day, as I was uh, essentially walking across campus, I just thought, why doesn't this country have a national teacher corps? Why aren't we being recruited as aggressively as we were being recruited at that time, late 80s, um, to work on Wall Street and work in these management consulting firms. Why aren't we being recruited that aggressively to teach in our country's lowest income communities? And it was just one of those things. I mean, the minute I thought of this idea, 
um, I just became obsessed with it. Um, and part of it, I thought that it would have this power on, on two levels, really, that on the one hand, it would channel all this energy and talent and commitment that was you know, good enough for the firms on Wall Street, but into schools in low-income communities. And I thought that could make a huge impact in the lives of kids growing up today. And at the same time, I thought that there would be this other power as well, because I had been watching what happened. I mean, my friends, you know, in previous years, you know, would go to these two-year corporate programs. And they too, I mean, you know, some people really want to go in that direction, in which case I think it's great. A lot of the people I knew reached the point I had reached where they were just like, what in the world do I want to do? And because they couldn't really figure it out, they would go to the two-year firms. And their logic was always, I'm going to learn a lot, and then I'm going to go do something else. And I was watching what they did, of course, which was go to business school and back into those firms, which again can be a great path to pursue, of course. Um, um, but I was thinking, what if their first experience out of college was actually teaching in a low-income community? Um, I thought that that would influence just the way they thought and their very consciousness and the way they made decisions as they went on in their careers and assumed positions of influence in whatever sector. Um, and, and that for some of them, that experience would actually influence their career trajectory and that as a result, they would end up assuming real leadership roles inside education and whatnot. So I was getting very carried away in my head and um, needed a thesis topic and, and realized this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to you know, spend my thesis researching this idea and, and proposing its creation. At the same time, though, I was just determined that this idea had to happen. And so, of course, I did what, what any thinking person would do, which was write a letter to the President of the United States um, <laughs> suggesting that, and I really, I mean, it was a long and passionate letter that really spelled it out, like this, you have to create this as the Peace Corps of the 90s. Um, and I received a job rejection letter in the mail. <laughs> so I guess my letter made it in the wrong stack in the White House. Um, and it was really at that point, and only at that point, that I thought, OK, it's not going to happen that way. But this has to happen. And you know, I, I tell people, and I really deeply believe that you know, my greatest asset at that time, without any doubt, was my absolute naivete and my complete lack of experience and lack of any instinct that this might be a crazy thing to pursue. So I just decided, you know what, I'm going to create a plan for actually creating this as a nonprofit organization, and then I'm going to try to make that happen. And part of, to me, part of the idea was that this couldn't start as sort of a small nonprofit organization, because to me, this was not about creating a program to get people into teaching. It was more about you know, building a movement, like saying that our generation had to do something about the educational inequality in our country. Um, and I thought that to get the most highly sought after graduating seniors, we would have to start on a certain scale that would communicate a sense of urgency and a sense of national importance. So the plan in the thesis was to, in the first year, inspire thousands of people to apply and train in place, no fewer than 500 of them, because 500 seemed to me to be the smallest possible number that would communicate big, nationally important, um, and, and place them across the country. So that, that, was, that was the plan. And uh, I you know, boiled that thesis down into a proposal and sent it to 30 
randomly selected corporate CEOs, one of whom uh, was the CEO at the time of Mobile. Um, and the way I found these companies to write to, I mean, this was not because I had all these connections. It was because there was a magazine article on the cover of Fortune magazine saying that corporate America had decided to prioritize education reform. And so I picked the names out of that article about the companies in, you know, committed to this and wrote to their CEOs. And um, at the time, Rex Adams was number three at, or so at, at Mobile, and my letter got to him. And, and I was pursuing, I was following up on all those 30 letters, trying to find people who would meet with me. And he was one of the seven or so who actually did. He somehow, uh, this landed on his desk, and he thought, this is intriguing. Um, and I met with him and made a proposal that he give me a seed grant of $26,000, which he actually did, which enabled me to spend the summer really just further trying to build support for this idea. Um, and so it was the kind of thing where I would write 100 letters to people in the business world who might fund it and in the foundation community, to people in school districts, you know, people in the education reform movement who might be important allies, um, and I would get, you know, a couple of meetings off those hundred letters. But maybe one of those people thought it was a good idea and would, you know, introduce me to a few others. Everywhere I went that summer, people would say to me, this is a great idea. Um, like, there's a huge need for this. We need to get the most outstanding graduating college seniors to teach in low-income communities. But they would say it would never work. And it's hard to believe this now, but the reason people thought it would never work is that they thought the college students would never do it. Um, at that time, there was this label affixed to my generation. We were called the me generation. And supposedly, all we wanted to do was go you know, work on Wall Street and whatnot. Um, and so people just thought, there's not a chance. I mean, people were laughing at the concept that you would ever get you know, I would show them a list of 100 schools um, where we were going to recruit that you could ever get Duke students, for example, to want to teach in a low-income community. And that was the one thing that I actually, as a person who had just graduated from college, had any reason to have conviction about because, you know, I knew those graduating college seniors and I was absolutely convinced that, in fact, they would want to do it. And so that became the plan, to show all these people that the college students wanted to do it under the very risky, I now know, but remember then I was far more naive, uh, plan that if we could show them that the college students wanted to do it, everything else would come together and the school districts would agree to hire them and the corporations and foundations would give us the two and a half million dollars or so that I thought this would cost in the first year. Um, so that was the idea. I worked together with a group of other people to find students at 100 campuses to spread the word about Teach for America. And um, within about four months, 2,500 graduating seniors responded and applied, um, which at the time was news. You know, where is this outpouring of idealism coming from the me generation? And so that generated the first few, you know, media hits. And it, it just sort of, the momentum did start building. Um, and in fact, corporations and foundations did put together the two and a half million dollars that it took to fund this and experienced teachers, you know, came together to say we want to help train these people during the summer and organized an eight week summer training institute for them. School systems in six communities across the country agreed to hire them. So a year after I graduated, I was looking out on an auditorium full of 489 Teach for America Corps members who had signed up um, to, to serve their first two year commitment. Um, that was just the beginning of what 
of course, became and all the more intense, um, you know, experience as we progressed. I very quickly learned the advantages of experience. Um, again, I don't think we would be here today if I had known what I know now, but I also, you know, we very quickly realized that we would never be able to um, have the impact that we were trying to have without going through a, a tremendous learning curve. And, you know, there was so much to learn just programmatically, like even thinking about how do you recruit the most outstanding graduating seniors who really have what it takes to not just survive but excel as teachers in some of the most challenging teaching situations in the country and how do you how do you train them so that they'll be successful and support them ongoing um, and ensure that um, you know they they take the right lessons and don't leave sort of disillusioned that change can happen um, so there was a huge programmatic learning curve and at least as significant a huge, for me, kind of organizational learning curve in terms of figuring out how do you, how do you manage something on this scale and ensure quality and, and ensure financial sustainability. Um, so we went through a first decade um, of many sort of probably classic startup learning curves. Um, and, uh, and in fact, of course, at every stage, there are new learning curves to go through. Um, but for many reasons, I think probably largely that this is sort of an idea that, I mean, even very early on, like immediately, this was an idea that was almost far beyond me because it just magnetized so many people who kind of shared the ideals on which, you know, the idea is based that, um, that this country should be a place of educational opportunity for all. Um, and so we made it through the low points um, to the point where, as you heard, uh, Teach for America has um, fielded 12,000 core members now over time. Um, the core members, you know, in, in many ways, I think we've, we are having the impact that we're striving to have in terms of um, the impact core members have during their two years. I mean, still, it's humbling for me to, you know, go out and see what it is that our core members are doing because they're just absolutely throwing themselves in and devoting every ounce of their energy for those two years they commit to this, to working to expand the opportunities available to their kids. And they really do make a huge and measurable impact um, during that time as demonstrated really by just the tremendous support that exists for Teach for America in their schools and um, and school districts and in the communities where, where they work. And at the same time, this experience has had a sort of profound impact, I think our, our alumni would say, on, on our alumni. Um, so we now have 9,000 Teach for America alumni. Um, you know, 63% of them are working full-time actually in education. Um, of the others who are not, 40% have jobs that relate in some way to schools or low-income communities. So this experience, these were people who really, by and large, were not planning to go into teaching. You know, last year, I think 8% of our incoming core members said that if it were not for Teach for America, they would have taught through another um, avenue. And yet this experience is just so um, <coughs> impacting that it's really shaped their their whole career trajectory. Um, and to me, what's, what's really most um, inspiring about our alumni is that, you know, they're in their 20s and 30s right now, just given that Teach for America is not that old. 
and yet they really are, as Greg said, assuming real leadership roles in the broader effort. They're running some of the most acclaimed schools in low-income communities. Um, they're serving on school boards as kind of champions for education reform. They're advising governors and senators on education policy. They're starting public health initiatives and economic development initiatives to try to improve the conditions in low-income communities to help take some of the pressure off of schools. Um, so on one level, you know, much has been accomplished. I think, you know, we spend very little time at Teach for America feeling satisfied. It's probably impossible to engage in this work or in related things and, and feel satisfied because every day we see kind of two things juxtaposed against each other. On the one hand, we see just the incredible disparities that exist in our country. Um, and, you know, I think as a country, we're somewhat immune to the statistics, and I sort of hesitate to even throw them out given that, but they're so striking when you really stop and think about the fact that, you know, a nine-year-old who happens to be born in a low-income community, a nine-year-old, is already three to four grade levels behind a nine-year-old who happens to be born in a high-income community. Um, that's an incredible fact, and, and the gap in outcomes educationally just gets wider from there um, to the point that if you happen to be born in a low-income community, you're seven times less likely to graduate from college than if you happen to be born in a high-income community. So we see those disparities every day playing out in the lives of, of real kids who have the same kind of, of hopes and dreams and truly the same potential as kids in, in other communities. And we see the disparities juxtaposed against something else, which is the possibilities. We see evidence every day in communities across the country that when kids are given the opportunities they deserve, they absolutely do excel and excel on an absolute scale. And I want to share a couple of stories just about two of our core members, and I could literally share any one of, you know, hundreds of these stories, but I want to share these two and then step back and, and just share with you what, what I've drawn and what we've drawn from, from their experiences and from many others like them, um, because it's really that um, that I think has, has sort of shaped our direction and that is, is leading us to, um, to be pursuing the kind of very ambitious plan for growing our impact that we're pursuing right now. Um, the first is a story about a woman who, uh, you know, named Aurora, Laura, who taught in Houston. She had grown up on the border in Texas, actually, and had herself, you know, experienced firsthand the inequities we're talking about, but, um, you know, sort of made it to the University of Texas um, and pursued an honors program there and graduated you know, with all sorts of honors and distinctions and whatnot, and signed up to do Teach for America because she wanted to address the disparities she herself had experienced. And she found herself in a fourth grade classroom in Houston, Texas, um, and describes her shock. I mean, we all read the statistics, but still when you see it, at the fact that when she met her kids and sort of diagnosed their performance and where they were in the first week of school, she discovered that they were, the fourth graders were pretty much on the first grade level. Um, that while most fourth graders can write, you know, 
essays, like well-formed essays, her kids could not write complete sentences. And, you know, she was sick to her stomach and really spent a couple weeks trying to figure out what in the world to do with this and just resolved to do something that, that a lot of people in her school thought was crazy. She said, you know what? I'm going to get these kids on grade level by the end of the year. They're going to be able to write beautiful essays, and every one of them is going to pass that test in Texas that fourth grade students are supposed to be able to pass. Um, and so she just started in with her kids, you know, doing what good teachers do, trying to really find out where, where they were and, and to meet them where they are and to, you know, have good quality instruction during the time she had with them. She very quickly realized there was no way to do this without more time because her kids were so far behind. And so she convinced the families of her kids and the school principal to let her keep the kids into the, you know, to five o'clock, you know, for, for a couple days a week. And then that became three and four days a week. And then pretty soon she had a key to the school building. She was getting the kids there on Saturdays. Um, and by the end of the year, um, it's, of course, a much more involved story. And as she would be the first to say, I mean, there were many, many challenges, many mistakes, but, 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 but good progress as well. Every one of her kids passed that test more kids than had ever passed before in all the fourth grade classes in the school combined, um, which of course led the principal to double the number of kids in her class the following year <laughs> to see what she could do. Um, so I want to tell one other story just so that we don't sort of write this off as this is what can happen in an elementary school but it's never possible later on, which, um, you know, I think about another woman named Nicole who was assigned to teach um, actually, very different background from Aurora, was a psychology major at Boston College um, and was assigned to teach math to 7th and 8th graders in Phoenix in an extremely high poverty community there. Um, and she tells the story of her first, you know, few days of school where she was just like, I was just standing up in front of the class looking out on this sea of disengaged faces. She had 120 7th and 8th graders in five class periods. Um, and she could not figure out how to get them to really express any level of sort of I'm focusing on on the substance of what's going on in this room and she was trying to really understand what's going on with them and she started trying to spend more time with the kids after school and went out to some of their homes and whatnot and over time as she tells it you know around the third week of school or so she just came to a pretty basic revelation which is that she, she said, you know, every time I would say to a kid that I'm a math teacher, they would say, oh, I hate math. I can't do it. She's like, it was always that. I hate math. I can't do it. And so she developed this theory that it was all about confidence. And so she figured out all these strategies to try to build her kids' confidence in being able to do math. Um, now, she also tested her kids. There's lots of testing in Arizona. And she actually showed me three different tests and where her kids were compared to the other, you know, seventh and eighth grade students in her school district, and actually these are small school districts in five surrounding school districts. Her kids were the lowest performers in math, I mean, of all of these other classes and schools. And um, so she set out to say, by the end of the year, we're going to, you know, she didn't even set the clear goal, but we're going to be much better off. So. 
she started trying to build her kids' confidence. She, too, realized, I don't have enough time. There's no way to catch my kids up to where they should be at this grade level with just the time I've got with them. So she did lots of other creative things, one of which was to convince the entire school faculty to turn a 45-minute school-wide study hall into a math tutorial so that she had all the other, even the English teachers and whatever, tutoring kids in math during, during that period. Um, she's a pretty dramatic person, so she did all these things to try to engage her kids in math and whatnot. At the end of the year, and I saw the assessments myself, her kids were literally the highest scoring students of all those same classes um, on the standardized tests, on these three different assessments. 75% of her eighth graders signed up for an honors math track in high school which led the high school counselors to get in their cars in the middle of the day and drive over to this middle school to find out what was going on because they had never seen an eighth grader from this school sign up for an honors math track. When we step back and think about what Aurora and Nicole and many, many, many other core members, you know, even in their first and second years like them who have truly affected dramatic gains in their student achieve, students' achievement have shown. I think we've taken from it a couple of, of sort of big lessons. One is that it can have a truly powerful impact when you get someone who has real leadership ability and put them in this kind of teaching situation. When you really think about what it was that Aurora and, and Nicole and honestly every other highly successful teacher I have personally ever met in a low-income community does, they're really doing what an effective leader would do in any context. They're stepping back and setting a, a big vision that a lot of people think is crazy. They're mobilizing others, you know, their kids, the kids' families, other allies who they might need the help of in their school communities. Um, to work with them to achieve that vision. They're being absolutely purposeful. You walk into their classrooms and you don't see what you would expect to see when you think back probably to your own school experience, like you know, teachers who've developed a lesson plan and are delivering it. You see people on a mission. They're thinking, how do I maximize every minute of this day to move my kids forward. They're working with such a sense of purpose and such a sense of urgency. And then they're absolutely relentless. You know, they figure out they don't have the resources that they need. They don't have the time they need. They all realize that. And so they figure out, how do I get it? You know, how do I go outside of the constraints of, and traditional expectations to, to get that? How do I get more time with my kids or access whatever other resource I need to help this particular kid along? Um, so one thing we take from it is that every additional um, real leader we can bring into schools and low-income communities can have a huge impact in the lives of kids growing up today. The other thing, though, that we take from this, you know, and people will ask somewhat skeptically, do you really believe that this is sustainable? I mean, when you think about what it takes to be as successful as an Aurora or Nicole were, do you really believe it's sustainable? And I would say absolutely not. I don't believe from everything I've seen that it's sustainable. I don't believe that we can keep patching what we've got here 
with through the efforts of a bunch of people who honestly a huge asset of teach for america is that most of these people are straight out of college and are willing they're at a point in life where they have very few to make a huge generalization but other obligations so yeah they can work 24 7 and that's what those people are doing but can we really expect there to be hundreds of thousands of teachers in low-income communities going to that extent to have the kind of impact that that we would have to have if we're really going to close the achievement gap. And we would say no, that ultimately we're going to have to affect broader kind of systemic changes, that ultimately to get where we need to be, we are going to have to, first of all, take some of the pressure off of schools in low-income communities so that kids aren't showing up at kindergarten already in urban and rural areas so far behind where kindergartners are showing up in other communities. Because you know, they haven't had access to adequate preschool or health care or nutrition, et cetera. So we are going to have to do, I think, you know, things to take on some of those broader issues. And we're also going to have to do a lot to build the capacity of schools and school systems so that as long as we do have those socioeconomic disparities, we have, you know, institutions that have the mission and capacity and resources to, to compensate for those issues. And to me, you know, why, how can we get there? I mean, to me, it's a matter of national priorities. It's a matter of what the people who are driving our policies and our practices within districts and within under-resourced communities believe the solutions are. And it's about ongoing leadership. It's about the quality of leadership um, in, in our schools and school systems and in related social services and whatnot in, in low-income areas. And honestly, thinking about all that has, has also led us to believe that we need more leaders in this country who understand what you understand after you've taught successfully in a low-income community. Because when we can finally reach the point um, where you have people who really do understand that, um, running our major civic institutions, serving at every level of policy and in every sector, and you know, working long term in our communities and, and in our school systems. It's at that point that we think we'll truly make progress on, on affecting some of the, the broader <laughs> systemic changes that we need to see. And so all of this has clearly just fueled our sense of urgency to say, you know, we have to build Teach for America into a truly effective movement um, to eliminate educational inequality. And it's led us, um, you know, to work to scale what we do, just given the enormity of the problem. Um, we're working to get to the point where we have, you know, many more thousands of, of, of uh, core members at any given time, um, both because every additional person um, is one more, you know, person who can have the kind of impact that Aurora and Nicole did in the lives of their kids, and because we know that ultimately, and it's interesting, Aurora right now is 26, and she's one of four um, doctoral students in Harvard's Urban Super Superintendent Program. And Nicole is about to assume responsibility for running her own school, which is interesting. I mean, and these are two stories of which, you know, I could give you, you know, thousands more. But um, ultimately, seeing all this is just leading us to, to believe that we have to do more um, and, and we believe there's real potential to, to do more. Um, so I will 
close this, I actually want to share one last story to just sort of bring this around, and then I'd love to engage in a discussion about any of this. Um, I, one of our alums called me a couple years ago to share a story that, that I just want to share, um, because for me, it was, it was very striking. Um, this guy's name is Chris Barbick. He's an incredible guy, and he too actually taught in Houston. He graduated from Vanderbilt about 10 years ago, and and uh, taught in Houston, and actually his kids went from fifth grade when he taught them into a middle school, and uh, he had been such an incredible fifth grade teacher that the parents of his kids um, started organizing themselves after their kids got into this dysfunctional middle school and ultimately went to the school board and convinced the school board to give Chris a school building so that he could run a middle school that would enable him to continue what he'd done as a fifth grade teacher. Chris has, you know, sort of from there um, has built a school that is one of the top two performing public schools in the state of Texas. It's a middle and a high school and, um, you know, has a 100% college attendance rate and almost as high a uh, you know, high school completion rate, just incredible, incredible guy. Anyway, he was calling to share this story. I called him back. He says, you know, he's telling me about this program he's created. I mean, he's always doing these incredible things, so I wasn't quite sure where this was going, but he was saying that he created this robotics program to engage his kids in math and science and that he had taken the kids to the state championship in Texas and they had won first place. And I'm saying, that's great, that's great. Um, you know, and he's like, yeah, but guess who won second? And I'm thinking, no idea. You know, how's this story going to end? And he says, your alma mater, Highland Park High School. Now, this is the school I referred to earlier um, that serves a community that calls itself the bubble for its complete lack of any form of diversity or disadvantage. And, you know, to me, that was just one more kind of point where I just realized we can do this. We can reach the point where all kids in our country have the chance to attain an excellent education. I know what kind of resources and opportunities the kids in my high school have access to. And to think that in a fair and square competition, Chris's kids, he's still serving the exact same community where he was placed as a core member you know, a decade ago, um, can, can beat out those kids is just proof that we can get there. Um, and I truly, truly believe that the only question is whether enough of the most talented and committed members of sort of the younger generation will say, you know what, we're going to lead us to that point. Um, and so for all of you in the room who might consider joining this movement, I'll just say, you know, I can imagine no more fulfilling, certainly challenging, but fulfilling and, and important pursuit. So. Thank you very much. <laughs> Do you all have questions about any of this? Yeah. Hi, uh, just really quick because I have to leave soon. But I'd be really interested in uh, if it's possible to obtain Is it essential to this store? Is that available or is that violating some sort of privacy code? 
it'd be hard to generate one list. I mean, literally, I'm sure it seems like, oh, there are like 10 of these people. There are so many of these people. I mean, actually, there's someone at Teach for America who is working to write a book that will, through some of these stories, um, kind of communicate what we've learned about kind of what we think the essence of the problems and, and the solutions are. And so that may be one way to have more of a window into you know the the real stories and 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 what they tell us um but if you got in touch with us i mean i don't know sort of what you're driving at but and wanted to talk with some of these i mean there are people in north carolina in eastern north carolina even I and mean, this is our first year in charlotte we have a bunch of first year teachers there but some of them could point to results like like we're talking about and you could we could get you in touch with them. In the context that I'm also interested in education, one day I'd like to run my own school. And, and I am right now in the rut of how is it going to happen? And I figure that if I surround myself with positive people and surround myself with positive stories, then I, I just may be encouraged to one day join among successful groups of those who have done it. If you're interested in that, one thing I would do and you may have already done it or heard about this, but have you ever been to Gaston, North Carolina? You should find it. It's, you know, somewhere in the state in a very remote <laughs> rural park. And um, there's a school there that a bunch of Teach for America alums started called Gaston College Prep. Um, it is, it, it will change your world to see that school. And then go next door and look at the, traditional school that's been there for decades. Um, it's just, it's an unbelievable experience. They're taking kids who as fifth graders come in and are, um, you know, often on the kindergarten or first grade level, some of them slightly ahead of that. And by the eighth grade, they're producing the second and third top writing test scores in the entire state. But it's far more than about tests. It's about getting their kids on track to college. Not any college, but the college of their choice. And it's it's actually, of you know, people think there's no one answer to education. I, I'm becoming doubtful about that because, at least in our context, um, I've seen very few models that radically improve student outcomes. And everyone I've seen is the same model, and that school is one of them. So, yeah. Go ahead, yeah. What kinds of impacts have you observed in the environment of the children touched by Teach for America, like their parents, families, and communities? Um, meaning in sort of how do the core members work with, how, do, how does the core members work change the families and the communities and whatnot? I mean, I have yet to also find a highly successful teacher in, in this particular context who isn't extremely proactive about developing relationships with the families of the kids and really bringing them into the process. Um, and I think, you know, there's this perception that in some places that parents in the communities, you know, that we're working in don't care. And, you know, th there are always, I mean, all parents are different, just like all people are different, but by and large, that is not the story. I mean, the story is that we have school systems that often repel any, especially 
people who are easily intimidated by systems, given their life experience or whatever it may be, any like inclination to be involved. And so teachers who reach out to the parents and say, this is what I want to do with your kid, and this is how you can support this effort, are just find an incredible response from parents. And what our teachers realize is they desperately need the help of the parents because, again, they can't do it all within the bounds of the school day. Um, and so I think just, you know, strong relationships, it goes a huge way. And it also leads the parents to then understand how to continue engaging with teachers beyond that. And it raises their expectations for what they can expect from their kid's school, which is helpful. That's incredible that you want to do that. Um, you know, it's so hard to answer that question. I do feel like I've learned a lot that's informing how we progress. Um, but even as I say that, I know that five years from now, I'll look back on, you know, we're about to launch the next phase of this big growth effort, our next five-year plan, and I know I'll look back and think, you know, we knew a little bit, we learned a lot, you know. Um, and I don't know, I mean, other than, I feel like what's gotten Teach for America to this point is simply, you know, developing really clear plans, diving in and being just relentlessly open, you know, to, you know, revision along the way. And um, just, there's such a, an ethos throughout Teach for America of just constant learning, just constantly looking at, at all the information we've got and, and sort of redirecting, whether it be around fundraising strategies or, or you know, teacher training strategies. Um, and I think it's more that than anything that, that is probably gonna help, help you along. I think it's, it's hard to figure out. It's also your context would be so incredibly different in terms of the funding community and all of that that it'd be hard to be more specific, I think. But I, I, I'd love to, you know, we'd love to be a resource to you as you progress with it. Yeah. Um, earlier you talked about the 63% of um, alums who have gone back into education. Do you think that it's better for reform for that number to increase or decrease? Is it better for people to go back into teaching or for people to get the experience and then, for lack of a better word, infiltrate business? We talk about this all the time. Like, we need some people who are not redirected. <laughs> you know, and actually we're thinking about that as we recruit. Like, how do we get people who will stay the course and go into business and stay the course and go into journalism? Because ultimately we think we really need, you know, when you look at who's even determining our education reform strategies as a country, it's more often business leaders than teachers, you know, and so we want the business leaders and the leaders in journalism and, and the leaders in policy who really do progress along those paths. And, you know, 
I should also, you know, the 63%, at, at the same time, I mean, some of the 63% are teaching and, and, you know, many of them are also sort of assuming leadership roles within education, within school districts, within, you know, running their own schools and whatnot. And it is true that you quickly realize that the lack of capacity in school systems is so huge that even at the age of 24, you can be given massive responsibilities. And I think that has kept a lot of, of people in it. And, and that's important. So we think we need, this is why we think we need to grow, because we do need more people who are out there in all sectors. And we also do need more people who stay the course in education. We're very agnostic with our core members. I mean, as long as they're asking themselves, how can I personally have the greatest possible impact on this problem? Um, when I think about my strengths and weaknesses and, and the problem that, and the solutions that I believe to, to um, be the case, you know, where should I spend my energy? And as long as that's the calculation, we think it's all good. Yeah. Um, in your first year, how did you prepare the uh, 500 applicants or the 500 students for teaching? Well, in the first year, we uh, did it very differently than we do it today, that is for sure. We actually found experienced teacher educators who, you know, had been focusing their efforts in, in low-income communities and really turned over the training program to them and sort of formed a team of people. They designed it, um, and we hired a faculty of experienced teachers from the communities where we were working, um, and they sort of went to it based on their own convictions. It was sort of, <laughs> it was a, a challenging summer. Um, but it was lots of very committed educators, you know, just trying to pass on what they knew. We have learned so much over time, it would be almost impossible to describe. But part of what we've learned is what differentiates the most successful teachers in low-income communities. And that learning has informed what it is that we're trying to get our core members, of course, to internalize by the end of the summer. And then part of what we've learned is, is around training. You know, And we went from fielding in the first year 500 student teachers into the classrooms of 500, quote, mentors in Los Angeles uh, to running our own school summer schools for kids because we found that they really needed to have full-time experience with kids to really understand what they needed to know. And, and we now, our alums are the faculty. And so, um, and, and we've developed our own sessions and, um, you know, it's a pretty intense summer program at this point. Yep. Um, you know, we had spent a lot of time thinking about that question. You know, how can we apply what we've learned in a way that has a broader impact? And, and part of our experience, you know, of course, we work very closely with human resources departments within school districts. And so we were really thinking a lot about, you know, how could we affect systemic change in this? And that led us to actually start an initiative called the New Teacher Project, which we then realized was a diversion from our mission. And so we spun it off, and it's now thriving under the leadership of an incredible woman, Michelle Ree, who um, 
you know, and basically what they're doing is working with school systems, states, and schools of education to improve the way new teachers are brought into the profession. And they have learned, they, they've gone far beyond what we thought the kind of lessons were because they've now worked. They're, they're bringing in a quarter of the new teachers in five or six major urban areas. Um, they're bringing in a lot of, you know, traditionally certified people as well as alternatively certified people. Um, I would say that, and this comes from my involvement at this point on their board more than anything, but major, you know, sort of their, their perspective. Their perspective and, and mine when I started the new teacher project with her um, was that this was all about districts doing what we were doing recruiting aggressively you know districts weren't recruiting like they would just think well of course teachers should come apply to us and so they'd have you know first of all they'd all start the year with vacancies and they'd have you know maybe a thousand applicants for 1200 positions and they'd hire the thousand people I mean it was almost that bad so the new teacher project introduced the idea of aggressive recruitment good marketing campaigns you know and they have succeeded in that like you know New York City you know 25,000 people are applying for 2,500 spots with the New Teacher Project's Fellows Program. Um, so incredible stuff replicated in community after community. People, every community says it can't be done. It absolutely, every community it can be done. It can be done in rural communities. What they've come to believe now, because you know, for many reasons, no doubt beyond their efforts as well, there's now a lot of aggressive recruitment going on in school districts. But they've done all sorts of fascinating analyses that show that um, the people who are hired are not the most talented who apply. So what happens is a lot of really talented people apply to teach in low-income communities, but they're not willing to wait around, you know, through all of the bureaucratic hurdles until Labor Day to know if they have a job and some other employer grabs them up. They've got a report out there called Missed Opportunities, which is a pretty powerful report which shows pure data the extent to which this is true. And so it comes down to other things like from union contracts, which make districts not um, hire new teachers until the some teachers transfer and whatnot, um, to just human resources practices within school systems. I mean, it's a lot of it is mundane stuff like that. But the good news is that what we've seen through Teach for America, they've also found, which is that thousands of people will jump at the chance to teach in low-income communities if they're called upon to do it. So now the challenge is to figure out our way around some of those other factors. I personally also believe that the career ladders and figuring out how to you know, pay people in a reasonable way um, and pay people more is gonna be ultimately critical to sort of retaining the best people.